They dominated a big country with a small economy by doing business together, intermarrying, and socializing with one another. The tax system favored conglomerations, and they gobbled up companies into giant entities such as the Argus Corporation and Power Corporation. Their leaders gathered in rarefied places like the Toronto Club or York Club, Winston's, the Vancouver Club, or Montreal's Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Such concentration of economic power also bred an unhealthy coziness between businessmen and politicians, fostered by large campaign contributions, which are now no longer allowed. Jean de Grandpré, former chairman of Bell Canada, who held the record for political access, once told me he landed meetings with eight federal cabinet ministers and the prime minister, all within 24 hours' notice. Shareholder rights was an oxymoron. Securities laws were poorly enforced or non-existent on issues such as insider trading or tipping. Stock exchanges were self-regulated by an old boys' network of brokers. Annual meetings of public corporations were extravaganzas staged in hotels with lavish buffet lunches to treat the minions, or were grudgingly held in small conference rooms. Shareholder activism slowly began growing in the 1990s as a result of the growth of personal investment interest and gigantic pension and mutual funds with occasionally feisty money managers. But back in the 1980s, when I covered business for the Toronto Star, Conrad Black and Hal Jackman, for instance, had a standing bet on who would hold the shortest public company annual meeting. Black won with a meeting that dispatched the year's business on behalf of one of his many public corporate entities in a mere five minutes. Today, Hal Jackman prides himself on corporate morality and hands out a business card that chastises executive compensation excesses. Those days were a very different time, with very different people. It was an era of entitlement that some of us recanted. It was pretty bad, I must say, said Jackman in an interview with me over lunch in 2007. Canada's business press ignored such high-handed business behavior. Publications were timid, fawning, or captive to the captains of industry and finance. We had our place and were reminded constantly of that reality. Getting an interview with a bank chairman required weeks of careful letter-writing aimed at convincing layers of banking centurions. Once granted an audience, one would be escorted into an elegantly appointed office, as large as a bungalow, with adjoining sitting, board, and dining rooms. These executive suites, which still exist at the tops of Toronto bank towers, were ringed with phalanxes of female secretaries equipped with typewriters and noisy telephones, and wearing smart suits, high heels, and scowls. I remember being shown the boardroom of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce in the 1980s, where its 48 or so directors and officers sat in judgment over every credit and creditor. Bank boards were as big as the parliaments of small countries and were riddled with conflicts of interest, because directors were also customers. At each director's seat was a button that turned on a red light to signal a director's conflict. Once it was pushed, proceedings would stop until the director could recuse himself. The chairman also had a button, which turned on a green light to signal to a departed director sitting in an anteroom that he could return because the item had been completed. There was a handful of women and members of visible minorities on bank boards in 1986, but they were unable to join business watering holes such as the Petroleum Club, the Toronto Club, or the York Club. The bank's directors were up and down like yo-yos all the time, said a former CIBC director and later oil promoter, Dome Petroleum Chairman Jack Gallagher, in an interview with me in 1979. Directors were customers of the bank and all had conflicts from time to time. When our loans came up, we had to leave. One of the bank's directors was on 20 different companies, so he was up and down constantly. Those holding multiple directorships extended cronyism to the furthest reaches of the economy. Such a workload today would be untenable, because of increased regulation, 
but back then, most professional directors just showed up and voted, along with the wishes of officers or owners. These directors, notably those on bank boards, functioned in the Canadian business world like economic aristocrats, without checks and balances. Banks readily loaned money to them, or to the companies whose directorships they held, while startups or outsiders, such as Calgary oil companies and small firms, were shut out. This nepotism and cronyism undermined the country's business climate because it led to inappropriate loans for inappropriate people, while worthier entrepreneurs or endeavors were ignored. Business practices were also oppressive. Eatons of Canada used to dictate terms to suppliers, pay some bills six months late, and refuse to deal with any supplier who also sold goods or services to competitors like Simpsons or The Bay. Conrad Black once tried to get me in trouble with the Toronto Star when I was a columnist for quoting the chairman of the Ontario Securities Commission, Henry Knowles, about alleged securities violations by Black involving Cleveland-based Hannah Mining. Black subsequently pleaded no contest.